Well, welcome. You uh, picked a great Sunday to come. If you're brand new or if you've been here a hundred times, we are starting a new series today that I am so excited for. It's called Brave in the New World. And we, over the next few weeks, are going to be tackling some of the most difficult issues and topics that we face sort of culturally and societally in our world today. And so our goal this morning is to set a little bit of groundwork and to give us a path forward that we're going to ask Jesus to lead us in over the next few weeks. Um, Like you, I watched in horror on April 15th, not as my tax return came back, um, but as Notre Dame burned. Did you guys watch this? You were dialed in? I had had the chance to go one time to Notre Dame, and uh, Aaron and I were on a uh, layover in Paris. It lasted a day. We were on our way home from a mission trip in Africa, and so we spent a romantic day in Paris together, and um, we had the chance to stand in that beautiful cathedral, and just, um, it's a little bit different than being in South Fellowship Church building. It's a little bit, and the, the grandeur and the awe that you feel when you stand in that space is unparalleled. And yet, we saw on April 15th that it began to burn. And, And I think that this is a prophetic picture, not just of what physically happened to the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, but what's been going on with the church for a number of decades. That you, you may be aware that if you were to go to Notre Dame and stand in the courtyard, what you would find is what they call point zero. It's a marker, and everything else in Paris is measured against that point. So all the distances are in relationship to Notre Dame. Now, that was not accidental. And it also was not just a physical marker. That at one point, that was a a spiritual marker, too. It was a marker of reality. It was a marker of how we figure out our spot in this world, that it was measured against the church. And in large degree, it was determined by Scripture. That was point zero. And in our day, in our culture, in our time, in our country, we have a number of point zeros, too. Have you... Recognize that when you drive through most downtowns in our country, what you find on Main Street is what? A church. A church. You drive through a small town, and what's in the very center of the town? A church. This just in. That's not by accident. The church was both literally and figuratively at the center of it all. But I I don't think I'm being overly dramatic, and I don't think I'm speaking in hyperbole. Although I'm a pastor, and I'm prone to do that. Um, Jesus did too, so I feel like I'm in okay company. Um, That day is no more. That day is no more. There may be churches on Main Street, 
But I think our prophetic moment, our cultural moment, it looks far more akin to the burning of Notre Dame than it does to the church on Main Street that's intact and has a voice that's rippling out to the culture around it. No, 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 no. I, I think just like Notre Dame burned, we've had churches in the center of every major downtown across the U.S. that are no longer places of worship, but are now bars and pubs and nightclubs. I mean, this is where we stand. But it isn't always where we stood. That there was a day, there was a time, where the church had unbelievable impact on the world around it. There was a day and there was a time where there was an early group of followers of Jesus. We'll read about some of them this morning. Who, in, in their world, the earliest followers of Jesus, catch this, they had zero political or social power, but they developed massive influence. They didn't have any say over the Roman government. They didn't have any vote in the empire. The early followers of Jesus didn't have a seat on the Sanhedrin. They didn't get to speak into temple practices um, politically, socially, religiously. They had, say it with me, zero power. Zero power. But over the course of a few hundred years, with no power, they developed massive influence. And people started to take notice. And most notably the powers that be started to take notice. So if you know your history, in 312, Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, became a follower of the way of Jesus. In 323, he declared that Christianity was the religion of the Roman Empire. And this religion, this group of people that had zero political and social power, but massive influence, all of a sudden had extreme, extreme power and influence. See, Christianity went from being a movement that had no power but great influence, catch this, we need to dial this in as we begin this series, to being a religion that had power in order to have influence. So the way that the church impacted the world dramatically changed under the reign of Constantine. The church started to build buildings, many of which we still go visit today and are beautiful cathedrals. The church started to get some tax breaks. It started to have influence and power in the world around it. And so subsequently, because we tasted power, there were some things that started to happen. Let me take you on a brief thousand plus year flyover of history, okay? So, after Constantine becomes a follower of Jesus, Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. We have, in the Middle Ages, a little event called the Crusades. You've heard of this, right? And so it reinforced all the more. The way that we have influence is by having power. And if we don't have power, we don't have influence. And the church started to get this in their DNA, and, and the church started to get corrupt, and you had this massive split in the church in the 1500s, early 1500s, between Catholics and whom? Protestants, right? And then you had fighting amidst the Catholics and the Protestants, and amidst the Protestants and the Protestants, and it was an absolute mess. And so you had a group of people in 1620 that said, we're going to go and we're going to seek religious freedom, and they hopped on boats and they traveled across the Atlantic Ocean, and they landed in the new world, right? These spiritual pilgrims 
looking for religious freedom, and they found it. And just so we're clear, Christianity was the primary religion in this new world, but it wasn't the only religion. And the United States was never a Christian nation because that's impossible. Christian is not an adjective, it's a noun. It can be a Christianized nation, and it certainly was that we are founded on Judeo-Christian values, but we are founded on an experiment that said, what if we create an environment where any religion can come and take root without being persecuted? That was the goal of the early pilgrims. And so the church in the new world, in our nation, in our world, wasn't just a consumer. It was a contributor. It was a, it was a curator. But you may be aware that that time didn't last. <laughs> that over the last century or so, the church has started to lose its voice in the public square. You're, you're aware of this? Okay. The, the church has continued to operate as a religion that had power in order to have influence. The only problem is that in our modern age, Christianity doesn't have power and therefore now doesn't have influence. And we've continued to operate in this old model. In order to have influence, we've got to have power. And so really, we've been left with our hands in the air as a collective church going, how in the world do we move forward? How do we live in this world, this world that's different than the world that our grandparents grew up in? How do we interact? What should we do? What should our methodology be to engage this world around us? And over the last century, we've had a number of different ways that we've attempted and see if you've maybe seen any of these play out in your day, in your time, or maybe through your life. Here's the first thing that we've tried. Condemn. Condemn. And this was primarily not only, but the fundamentalist movement of the early 1900s, and we've started to condemn culture, and we sort of the church was seen with like one of those big foam fingers, either doing this, the Dikembe Mutombo, or, or pointing and going, mm-mm, mm-mm. And that was, that was the methodology right? So um, we saw this happen in the 1980s with this rise of the hope for a moral majority, right? And here's the thought amongst followers of Jesus. If we can gain back the voting block and legislate morality, then we will regain the power and regain the influence. The only problem was that the moral majority was neither moral nor the majority. And eventually, the bottom fell out of that, didn't it? So we've tried to condemn culture. We've also um, attempted to critique culture. And this was um, in the camp that, that I would say I, I, I'm, I'm a part of, of evangelicalism. The, we want to sort of understand the worldview and we want to have a conversation, and we want to look at, here's the way Christianity's different, and so we'll go watch the movie, and we'll sit down, and we'll have a conversation, and here's what they're proposing, and here's what we believe, and, and so there was a, a critique, critique. And the movement I grew up mostly under was the copycat version of the way that we interact with the culture, right? Like, I remember walking into the Bible bookstore and seeing the CD or tape section, Right? And they had little signs beneath the CDs that said something like, if you like Dave Matthews, 
you're going to love jars of clay. And I'm like, what's wrong with just liking Dave Matthews, right? Like, he's amazing. And I listened to jars of clay, and they were good. But let's be honest, people, they were no Dave Matthews. <laughs> so we tried to copy it, right? Culture out there. And we're going, well, we can have our version of Christian music and Christian movies. And we'll take the good stuff you're doing, and we'll, we'll redeem it. We'll make our version. I think if we were to try to say what's our cultural moment, how do we interact with culture, I think to a large degree we just have to say Man, we're consumers. Like, maybe we don't condemn a whole lot. We, we don't critique a whole lot. We don't copy a whole lot. But, man, we'll go to the movie and we'll watch it. Very little conversation about any deeper messaging in it. These are all ways we've attempted to try to make sense of the world around us. Now, just to be clear, there is a time for each of these. There is a time for each of these. It, do, how many of you, just by raising your hand, how many of you wish that followers of Jesus would have been more condemning of the Nazi regime in Germany? Right? Yeah, me too. Me too. And there's a time for critique. Any art, any display of art, evokes a response, and you're supposed to have that, and that's good. There's a time to copy. I mean, Martin Luther is known for taking tunes that they sang in bars and making them into hymns. I mean, can you imagine them being like, cheers, and him going, yeah, a mighty fortress, that's amazing, right? I don't know. And certainly there's a time for consuming. How many of you have eaten recently, right? On some level, we are consuming culture, but lean in for, for a second. Look up at me. Look up at me. The problem becomes when any one of these approaches becomes the church's default position to the culture around it. In their most recent book, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, it's a book called Good Faith, they wrote that to a large degree, the church is viewed from the outside world as being extreme, right here, and irrelevant. Extreme and irrelevant. The church is no longer the place where people go for the big questions of life. Questions like, what is reality? Questions like, what is the good life? And questions like, how do we live that good life? Friends, Notre Dame is, is burning. And the reason they do not come to the church for answers to those questions anymore, which, by the way, those are the three main questions of every ancient philosophy and that every ancient religion tried to answer. What is reality? Who is the good person? How do we live that kind of life? The reason that the world no longer comes to the church to answer those kinds of questions is because the church no longer wrestles with those questions. We've specialized in one question. And the question we've specialized in is, how do we get to heaven when we die? And we're viewed as extreme, or we're viewed as irrelevant. And you add on top of that, you add on top of that. Um, in 1963, Bob Dylan wrote, the times they are a-changing. I mean, imagine what he would write if he were still alive today. The times are changing, friends, rapidly, are they not? I mean, think about this. Think about the world that we live in is, how many agree the world is changing? 
The world is changing. Yeah. I mean, we have worldwide population growth at an exponential rate that's never been seen before, right? The internet has changed the way that we think. Cell phones have changed the way that we communicate. 9-11, to a large degree, for our country, changed the way that we feel about our safety in our country. There are cars that can drive themselves. There are drones that will deliver your groceries for you someday, praise be to God. I mean, I'm not even touching on AI and all of the new frontier that's on the horizon with artificial intelligence. If you think the world is changing quickly now, buckle your seatbelt. Buckle your seatbelt. And you add on top of all of those layers the fact that at least in a visceral way, it feels like we are more divided now as a nation than we have ever been before. And I think to a large degree, the church and everybody else is having a hard time figuring out how do we respond. The old way of power in order to have influence isn't working any longer. Where do we go from here? What do we do? What's the new way forward? So lean in for a moment. Here's my hope. My hope is that the church would regain its voice. My, my hope is that the church would be seen as a beacon of hope and a beacon of light and a beacon of love. My hope is that the church would have the ability to speak into some of the deepest most prevalent, confusing questions of our day and of our time, but we need a different playbook. The way that we've been going about this is not working. It's not more of the same. It's not going to get the job done. And wouldn't it be nice if we had a playbook? Wouldn't it be nice if we could figure out a way forward? And what I want to propose to you over the next few weeks is that the way forward is the way that embraces influence without clamoring for power, that continues to be brave in the new world, but also operates with wisdom. And here's the irony of it all. We have our playbook. We actually just need to get back to the work that early followers of Jesus were doing when they embraced their position. Here's what they were and what I'm calling us to become as well. The church of the future, just like the early church, will be a creative minority that has influence without power. And so today I want to lay a foundation for you. And if you have your Bible, open to Acts chapter 4. If you're wondering, was that an introduction to the message? Yes, and to the series, it was. Acts chapter 4, that's where we're going to begin, okay? Acts chapter 4. Today's about laying a foundation that we're going to build on each week as we gather during this series. In Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching his followers about the kingdom of God. He was then taken in the ascension to heaven, and the Holy Spirit came. And in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 3, the Spirit broke out in such a way that people were declaring the gospel. God was calling people into the church at unprecedented rates. And in chapter 3, Peter and John heal somebody who was unable to to walk. Now, here was the problem. The problem was that 
they're preaching, and the problem was that the religious environment of their day wasn't exactly welcoming to the way of Jesus. They were pluralistic, but Rome had its pantheon of gods, and the Jews had their worship, a monotheistic worship of Yahweh. But you have to know, you have to know, you have to know that when Peter and John started preaching Jesus, it was a new thought. Okay, so that's the context. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. You there? Great, me too. Let's roll. And as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And greatly annoyed, which is awesome, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Yeah, the leaders of the sort of societal, cultural leaders of the day, they were greatly annoyed. But Peter and John didn't expect that they would just have a red carpet rolled out for them. Like, they didn't expect, like, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, the slain but risen Messiah. Like, brrr, like tell us more about this. No, 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 no. When they entered into the public square and they started to preach Jesus, they expected opposition. They weren't surprised by the fact that people had resistance to this message. It was brand new. No one had a category at that point in time for the worship of Jesus. But Jesus had also been very clear with his disciples when he sent them out to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. Listen to what Jesus says in his pep talk as he sends out the disciples. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And if I'm a disciple, I'm going, hey, Messiah, you mixed that up. Aren't we the wolves? Like, aren't we the people that have the, the power of God? Isn't the spirit of God going to come on us? And aren't we going to drive out demons? And aren't we going to heal the sick? And aren't we the wolves in this scenario? Please say yes. And he's like, I didn't stutter. You're the sheep. Right. I thought about this. Very few schools have mascots that are sheep. <laughs> right? Rams, maybe. Go see us, you Rammies. But sheep... You know why people don't have mascots that are sheep? Because if there's a bloodbath and a sheep is involved, they are not on the good end of that. They aren't. And so when Jesus tells his disciples, go out into the world, he's saying, expect opposition. But look at the way that the disciples respond. Verse 19, you can skip down if you have your own Bible. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. They didn't get offended. How dare you? They didn't retaliate. If you throw us in jail, we're going to. They didn't get defensive. They didn't turn into jerks. 
I think they understood that the influence of their platform would be determined by the amount of pain that they were willing to walk in. And they went, this is worth it. Here's the other thing. And please, will you look up at me? Will you lean in? I think this is for our cultural moment. This is so important. They realized that the way that they responded to being wronged was a part of the message that they delivered. The way that they responded was not something different than the message of Jesus that they declared, but it was intricately connected. And so they saw it as an extension. Like maybe today it would be like, well, the tone of the email is a part of the message. The way you respond to the comment on Facebook, it's a part of the message. The glance, the look, the eye roll, the it's a part of the message. It's all a part of the message. I, I can't explain this, and I have to be honest, I don't like it, but it seems as though, if you look at ch through church history, that the church always flourishes when it's under opposition. I mean, you see, what church growth movements typically happen in the most oppressive environments, it just seems like it's just up and to the right when people are getting beat up for their faith. I think there's two reasons for that. One is you don't ride the fence when you're getting beaten for your religion, for your faith in Jesus. You go like, I'm either in or I'm out, and if I'm in, I'm way in, and I might be in over my head. But here's the second reason. Here's the second reason. Just like when a business is struggling, they, they typically strip back all the layers and go, okay, why are we here? What do we do? What's our mission? And the same thing happens with the church when it's under persecution. And you can see this come through in the way that the early disciples, early followers of Jesus, they, they had a very simple message. Look at it with me. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus what? the resurrection of the dead. They were saying, if it's finished, it can begin again. They were saying, they were saying, if Jesus walked out of the grave, one day we will too. I mean, think about, think about all of the things the church didn't preach about early on. They didn't preach about, well, this is the Bible and we can trust every single word of it. And you know, I mean, they, that wasn't their message. They didn't preach Rome is evil, Rome is wrong, the oppression and the injustice, which it was, it was bad, that wasn't their message. Their message wasn't about, here's how, the, how sexuality has devolved in this culture, and here's what they're doing, and here's, they had one simple message. Do yourself a favor. Go read through all of the sermons preached in the book of Acts. You know what will be at the core of every single one of those sermons. Resurrection. Every single one of them. And so here's what they did. They, they clarified their message. When Paul is asked, and he records this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what's of first importance Christ has come, Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen. That is the core of his gospel message. Yeah. I think one of the things that followers of Jesus are known most for right now is like debating. 
like, man, as Christians, we, we have an opinion on everything. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Please hear me. I think you should have an opinion on politics. I'll tell you what opinion to have next week. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, totally not. That's not the trajectory. But I think you should have a, an opinion on politics. I, I think you should have an opinion on economics. I, I think you should have an opinion on the most hotly debated topics of our day. But I think you should be most vocal about Jesus. I think we should be most vocal about Jesus. I had the chance to go um, to my uncle's memorial. He passed away a few months ago. And my aunt, his, his wife, was a very strong follower of Jesus. And she wanted at his memorial for the gospel to be preached. Right? So we have this memorial. And the pastor, who I'm sure was well-intentioned and loved Jesus a lot, gave this gospel message about if you don't love Jesus, um, then he's going to send you to hell and you're going to burn. My other aunt came up to me afterwards and said, aren't you glad that the gospel was preached? And I said to her, I'm not sure it was. I said the early Christians had a gospel and they were very clear about what it was. It always included at least two things. One, the kingdom of God is at hand. You go read through. Everywhere Jesus talks about the gospel, the good news, he's talking about the kingdom. Two, the other thing included in every single gospel proclamation was resurrection. Those two things. If we don't preach resurrection, we don't preach gospel. This is the way that Paul writes it to Timothy. He says, remember... Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, whose kingdom he was coming to reign over, as preached in my what? Gospel. In my gospel. Yeah, they clarify the message. It's all about Jesus. It's about his resurrection. It's about his kingdom. Are there other issues that are important? Yep. Were they talking about them? probably in their own circles, but publicly, their proclamation was, Christ has come, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And here's how the passage continues. It says this, on the next day, so they're, they're being grilled on how in the world did this happen? This guy wasn't walking and now he's walking. Explain, okay? On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they put them in the middle, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Give an explanation. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, and it's the Greek word sozo, will you say that with me? Sozo, it literally means healed. This word explains why somebody wasn't walking one day and then the next day they are walking. They were sozoed. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom, by the way, you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, but let's talk about resurrection, any chance we get. Did you mention Jesus, the one you killed and the one God raised? Okay, yeah, that Jesus. 
by this man, he is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the corner stone. And then they end with this verse that I think I got wrong for 38 years. Because I used to go on to high school campuses. I used to talk to people about Jesus. And I would quote Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. And by that I meant, like, go to heaven when you die. Read it in context, though. And there is salvation, which is the Greek word soteria. It's from the root word sozo, which meant healed, which makes sense in the context. There is salvation or healing in no one else. For there is no other name, see, they're still talking about the name, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved or sozoed. And before, sozo meant healed or was translated healed. I think it should read, there's no other name given among men by which we must be healed. Certainly, that's a part of salvation. You do know that the word salvation in the scriptures is like really, really dense and really, really deep. To so-so someone means that one day they can walk, or can't walk and then the next day they can. To so-so someone means that there's chains in their heart that start, they start to become free of. To so-so someone means that they long to live eternally in the presence of a good almighty God. So-so means all of those things. But here, it's an explanation for why somebody can't walk one day and they can the next. Like I said last week, the healing of sin is not just about getting us into heaven. It's about healing our humanity. So the early church, they're going, we're on trial for doing good. Yeah, put us on trial for that. If that's why we're standing before you, you should know, Peter says, it's because of Jesus. Do you know that there was a, a time when the church, the, the sort, one of the monikers for the church was do-gooders? Do -good. And it wasn't a cut-down. It wasn't a knock. Like, this is, this is our history. Did you know that early followers of Jesus were some of the first people to create hospitals, places people could come and get well. They were advocates for children, like some kids who were just tossed out in the Roman Empire to be killed by way of exposure. Early followers of Jesus would go, and they would find those kids, and they would bring them in. The early church was a curator of the arts, a protector of children, an advocate for equality and education and literacy. The church is one of the most prominent institutions that has taught people to read throughout the ages because we believe that the scriptures are so important. We've been called a bookish people. I mean, what if, what if our way forward is, yeah, we expect opposition and we really, we clarify our message, Jesus and his resurrection, and then we build on top of that, we commit to doing good. And I know, I know, I know. Some people are like, well, we've got to do good and we got to preach. And I'm a preacher. I don't disagree with that. But if we don't do good, we will have no platform to stand on to preach. 
I mean, Jesus said it himself. If you don't like that, it's not that you don't like me, it's that you don't like Jesus. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, one of the things that I love about pastoring this church is I think we do this so well. I love the way that this church embodies that through the running of a food bank that feeds a number of people, dozens of families every single week, through a ELC Learning Center that holds out the hope of Jesus and gives great education at an affordable price to people, to our coffee shop that creates a place in our community for people to build community, to our partnership with North Littleton Promise, to our partnership with Family Promise. I love the way our support groups were saying, man, Jesus, we want to be a church that doesn't just talk about how great you are. We want to show people the glory of your name. What if, what if we became a church that made it our goal to be put on trial for the good deeds done in the name of Jesus? And here's how this passage ends, and we'll end here too. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was sozoed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Um, just so we're clear, you do know that perceiving that they were uneducated, ordinary men is not a compliment, okay? They're going, these guys are a little bit backwoods. They don't talk right. They don't understand the right etiquette. They haven't been to the right schools. They don't know all the answers. There's more questions for these dudes than there are answers to a large degree. But I think there's an important message for us here in this. We live in a cultural moment that's obsessed with information, don't we? And we love acquiring it, and we love learning. And I'm not down on learning. I love learning. Learning is a great thing. But what the early church brought to the table was not simply the information that they knew. It was the people that they were becoming. And the world looked on in absolute amazement, and they didn't say, these guys are really intelligent. They said, these guys have been with Jesus. And I think that the church of the future, just like the church of the past, is going to be a church that prioritizes presence with Jesus. Because this Justin, this Justin, and you may want to lean in for a moment. I'm going to pastorally share some difficult news with you, okay? There will probably always be someone in every room you're in that's smarter than you, okay? <laughs> Now, my case in point is James Holzauer. Anybody been following Jeopardy lately? I mean, 15 straight wins. The dude's netted 1.1 million. He's made Jeopardy his job. There's always going to be a James in your family. 
There's going to be a James in your neighborhood. There's going to be a James in your workplace. There's going to be someone who asks a question that you don't know the answer to. And if you wait until you know all of the answers to step into the conversation, you will be waiting your entire life. But I'm convinced that the world needs more people in it, present in it, who have been present with Jesus. That we embody his way that we carry his love. Yeah, I think you should know where you stand on politics. I, I think you should know um, some of the latest scientific discoveries. I think you should be aware of economic policy. I think all of those things are really, really good, but I think you should be known for being a person who's been with Jesus. There's no better gift that you can give to your marriage, to your kids, to your friends, to your roommates, to your neighbors. Be with Jesus. So over the next few weeks, we're going to tackle some really difficult topics. These are actually topics in a survey that we took recently that you said you wanted to hear me preach on. If you don't like this sermon series, it's your fault. But here's where we're going to be over the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about politics. And then we're going to talk about tolerance and love. We're going to talk about science and the Bible. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about oppression and injustice. We're going to talk about technology and materialism and individualism. And here's what I would say. The series is so controversial that Google rejected our ads for it. Um, that's a true story. Um, but here's what I would say. Here's what I'd say. You're probably not always going to agree with me. And that's okay. I want us to be a church that stands firm at the center, and the center has a name. His name is Jesus. Okay? That we, we, we agree on that. And then we say, Jesus ancient of days, teach us what it looks like to live brave in this new world. So as we close, where might the Spirit of God be prompting you just this week? As we look backwards to see the way the early church interacted with its culture and try to get that as a playbook for the way that we move forward in ours, what's one way? What's one way? that you can embrace the influence that you have without saying it's got to come from a place of power. Let's pray.